welcome back to episode number 66 of the Me Kevin Report. It is March 29th and there is a lot to cover, so let's get started with all the goodies that there are to cover today. Oh boy, <laughs> I tell ya, you know, getting in the routine of waking up early, got that down. But now I gotta get in the routine too of making sure all the beautiful, juicy research is perfect for you so we can keep them as efficiently as possible. My goal, by the way, is to start these at 4.20 a.m. every day because why not? That's my goal. We'll see when we can get there. It'll, it'll take probably a couple weeks and then we'll be there. <laughs> anyway, Alibaba is splitting into six different units and Jack Ma is back. A $220 billion empire splitting into six different units. Pretty crazy. Apple buy now, pay later is finally starting to roll out randomly to users. iPhone wallets. Uh, you'll have to have an iPhone wallet to be eligible. You'll be able to borrow between $50 to $1,000 via Apple buy now, pay later, which is kind of cool because maybe that means at some point you'll be able to use Apple Buy Now Pay Later for the courses on building your wealth. Though we did just partner with a firm and Klarna linked down below so you could use Buy Now Pay Later for the courses already. Uh, Apple Pay to come. Uh, Sam Bankman Freed is, uh, <laughs> oh boy, he's got now a security guard babysitting him because he's being restricted to a custom configured laptop that only lets him go on things like Netflix, Zoom, and the New York Times. They didn't even give him access to the New York Times and Fox. They only gave him New York Times. <laughs> uh, and he'll have a security door, uh, guard at his door to make sure people get wanded down to make sure they're not bringing in uh, special electronics uh, that he might be able to look at different unapproved websites. Uh, mm -hmm. He'll have access to his Gmail and Wikipedia as well. <laughs> it's almost like he only has access to left-leaning things. Gmail, Wikipedia, New York Times, Netflix, <laughs> they are keeping him on one side of the spectrum. Anyway, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence is suggesting that the 10-year yield is likely to stay above 3.3%, uh, potentially for the rest of the year. So stay tuned uh, to that. That would certainly keep pressure on uh, real estate, but also funding markets. Uh, we've got, uh, let's see here, Starbucks, a global EPS uh, forecasts may be too aggressive, say some analysts. Now, what I thought it was interesting about this is the fact that Starbucks has doubled its amount of uh, uh, Chinese stores. Uh, so I've actually been looking at Starbucks as one like, hmm, what price would I want to enter on? Uh, but uh, the valuation has always been too high for me to jump in on Starbucks for what it is. Uh, and, uh, and so this kind of reiterates an idea that maybe uh, it's a little too early still to get excited about Starbucks. Nike inventory up 40%, but that, and they're discounting more, but that didn't hold a candle to that spending that we just saw at Lulu. People are clearly still able to spend through this recession. Lulu absolutely exploded yesterday on a massive uh, uh, earnings beat. We'll go through the actual earnings report and earnings call in our course member live stream today. But wow, that was absolutely unexpected. Apparently, uh, you've got uh, Mr. Jefferson, the Fed Reserve governor, who told us that inflation has started to come down, but it's hot. it's unclear how much of the decline was due to higher rates because of the long, variable, and uncertain lags. You know, I feel like when you get a job at the Fed and you become one of the Fed governors, they kind of just like, all right, man, look, you've never done this before. You know, you got, you got your degree or whatever. Here's how it's going to work, okay? You're going to go up there. You're going to pick some things that Jerome Powell has said that you like, and then you're just going to repeat those. It's that simple. Boom. 
<laughs> is he able to play League? That's a really good question, actually. Uh, you know, like... <laughs> so, I've actually joked... And actually, I'm kind of half serious about it. Actually, I'm very serious about it. Uh, but I, I don't like thinking about this. But I, I, I think about it because I always think to myself, like, well, what are, like, the worst case scenarios, right? So, first of all, I think you all know. I mean, I, I know there's some people who watch this uh, this channel for perspective, but they just want to punch me in the face. And, and I get that. Uh, I, I think I am very punchable. Have you seen how I did my hair today? Uh, anyway, um... <laughs> I always kind of think about this idea of like, what if like nothing worked out? Like all of a sudden you just like, uh, you, you went bankrupt, you lost everything. I really don't think that's, that's in my future. I think that's like a, you know, it's less than 1% chance because I'm really confident in everything that we're building. But, uh, but obviously, you, you know, nobody knows, right? Every, every single business owner has, has that potential. And so I think to myself, well, I guess I could just, play Rust and World of Warcraft all day long with my family or my kids or whatever, and, and, like, it actually wouldn't cost that much money. I mean, if you think about it, you could buy, uh, uh, like, the, the cost per hour that you spend playing a video game is nominal. First of all, you have a one-time, basically, fixed cost of a headset, keyboard, mouse, and, and computer. So, what, 1500 bucks? Amazon, decent gaming computer now? It's not going to be the best, but be decent. Uh, and it's playable, let's put it that way. And then you play, pay, what, like, 60 bucks a month for a game or something like that? Your your costs of, of gaming are actually really, really low. So, let's say you wanted to game, I don't know, 60 hours a week because you really didn't want to do anything else. Although, you, you could game 60 hours a week and still have a full-time job working 40 hours, right? Definitely possible. So, let's say you spent 1500 bucks and uh, you did 60 hours a week. Uh, in one month, that's 240 hours of gaming. Which, for your first month, that works out to $6.25 per hour of gaming. If you played games 60 hours a week uh, for an entire year, that would work out to paying 52 cents per hour for a cost of gaming. Like, it's actually really affordable to play video games all day long. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's maybe, maybe that's why when I was in third grade and and we basically lost our home and car got repossessed and we had no money I just played video games all day long <laughs> It comes from experience uh, So uh, but I had nothing to do with that. That was a real estate crisis. All right, let's now talk about uh some actual topics that we got to get covered. Uh, since uh, I'm starting a little bit behind, I'm going to talk a little bit faster so we can make sure we can fit each of these segments in uh, together here. Bring back the house hack vest. <laughs> yes, uh, we're actually we're actually working on those. Thank you for that. Uh, we um, they they the design of the vest is great, but unfortunately, the way they they cut the the vest is actually really bad. Like they kind of. Rather than tapering in like a normal vest does, these taper out and they look like a sleeping bag. So it's fine when you're sitting, but uh, if you actually go walk anywhere, it, it looks ridiculous. So uh, we're actually uh, uh, returning these and then we're gonna get uh, a different company to make them. Just kind of annoying. Uh, I, I, worst case scenario, we, we've been thinking about maybe having somebody tailor them to taper them, but it's just, it's ridiculous that, that uh, the company even sold them the way they are. Uh, but that's okay. That's business, right? Two steps forward, one step back. That's just the normal kind of way of life right there. 
So, uh, okay. And all right, the first thing we're gonna talk. Okay, yeah, quite a few things to talk about. Okay, stand by for Kevin to start talking. All right, here we go. Well, AMC is potentially looking at an acquisition from Amazon. Now, this was unexpected, but does it potentially make sense? Methinks there could actually be a good argument here for Amazon. Now, I want to be clear. I'm personally not the biggest fan of Amazon stock. I think it's selling for a nice discount right now, but there's a potential that there's a reason it's selling for this sort of discount. I'm not the biggest fan of its actual merchandise business. I think they lose money hand over fist in merchandising. I think basically Amazon, and you can look at the earnings calls for this, though they purposefully lump together some of their costs of goods sold to make it very difficult for you to know how terrible some of their margins actually are. But generally, I think of anything they sell on Amazon and Amazon Prime as a loss leader. The place they make money is AWS, Amazon Web Services. However, those margins have been compressing by about four, uh, 400 basis points, so about four percentage points uh, over the last quarter. And we're starting to see a slowdown in revenue growth for Amazon AWS. So AWS, while it's a fantastic segment, it's the profitable one and it's really what you wanna be paying for at Amazon. Content creation is risky. Movie creation is a risky business. Uh, and uh, the merchandise business is, is not that uh, particularly profitable. It's almost more of a lost leader. In fact, Amazon is turning so tight that they're considering getting rid of the entire Amazon Alexa program by just killing it off. They don't find it to be profitable. They don't find it to actually be adding to sales. And quite frankly, while it was novel to go, yo, Amazon, order some new batteries, I always end up going on my phone anyway to make sure it's actually doing it correctly. So the whole like order by voice thing never really went anywhere. But how could this relate to Amazon? And what could Amazon potentially do with movie theaters? And why does Amazon even want these movie theaters? So I was doing some thinking about this and I wanna be clear. Bloomberg Intelligence and Bloomberg reported uh, this potential acquisition that led Amazon, uh, or actually led AMC stock to jump as much as 18% yesterday. But I'm going to go into my opinion now and give you sort of my thought as to why maybe this could make sense. So first of all, there are 584 movie theaters that AMC has. Now the actual cost to build out a movie theater, keep in mind this is not build the actual building, it's build it out. The reason I say that is because most of AMC theaters are actually leased. If you look at the asset statement for AMC, you've got somewhere around uh, a billion and a half for actual property and somewhere around $5 billion in actual leases, which means that $5 billion in actual lease liabilities probably represents control of somewhere maybe around 10 to $20 billion of actual buildings. So you could see as a percentage of property, AMC has very, very little actual property. Most of it is actually lease space because you're leasing really the space within the walls, uh, I mean, kind of like a commercial condo, so to speak. But somebody else owns the building, right? So most of uh, AMC's liabilities are lease obligations in addition to about $5 billion of actual debts that they have. They've got about $11 billion of liabilities uh, and about nine of assets. So they're a little upside down right now. They've got negative shareholder equity. We know that. Uh, it's about negative shareholder equity of around $2 billion. So <clears throat> the point is they have 584 theaters. So 584 theaters. If you wanted to build a movie theater right now, what would it cost you? Well, according to RS Means in 2019, the cost was about $2 million to build out a theater. I actually thought that sounded a little low, so let's call it 
$3 million. Let's add 50% to that cost. Uh, it, in my opinion, that also still seems a little bit low. With AMC though, if you paid $3 billion for AMC, which would be a premium of, of what the stock is trading for right now, it'd be maybe about a 30% upside, you'd be paying about $5 million per movie theater. Now, potentially, what's interesting here is Amazon's purposes for this. Because does it make sense for Amazon to potentially overpay for the movie theaters on these tenant improvement buildouts? And given the fact that right now, regardless of what the cost is to actually build out a movie theater, if Amazon was willing to build a new movie theater in vacant commercial space, the landlord would probably build out the movie theater for you for free. So the cost of the movie theater construction doesn't even matter because landlords will pretty much do anything right now to get new tenants. And if you sign a seven to 10 year lease and it's Amazon, a big anchor coming in to sign a big seven to 10 year lease with you, they'll probably give you a free movie theater. So the cost to build the movie theaters doesn't actually really matter. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to buy uh, AMC movie theaters for the actual theaters themselves because A, you could probably get free movie theaters, and, and B, these are old movie theaters, right? So they're actually a depreciated asset. It's not like they're brand new theaters. But why would it potentially make sense? Well, in my opinion, the biggest boon to Amazon would be the location. Think about it. 584 commercial massive spaces between probably 10 to 24 theater spaces that you wouldn't even need to use all of the theaters for actual theaters. You could use them for customer distribution centers, AWS. Think about it. You take, let's say you have a, a, a 10 unit movie theater in a mall, turn two of the theaters into distribution and, and so people can pick up their Amazon Prime orders with a bunch of lockers, turn three of them into an AWS outpost. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, like why? Like you'd have much better scale doing that in the middle of Nevada, potentially. But depending on how server infrastructure is designed, it might make sense to have your backup copies out in the middle of Nevada, but your, your needed copies for some of your customers of server data local to the customer, and potentially you reduce latency and actually increase the effectiveness of your product. Now, I'm not a server expert, so I'll take insight from other folks who know a lot more than I do. I'm just thinking outside the box, like well, how could this potentially make sense for Amazon? But in addition to being a locker pickup for Amazon, uh, a merchandise pickup for Amazon, a customer distribution center, uh, and also maybe an AWS location, what it also does is it puts Amazon right in malls and restaurants where it's easy for people to wanna order stuff on Prime, have it delivered there very quickly and effectively and easily. But also, I would guess that any Prime member might in the future be able to just walk in and have a whole host of the Amazon library showing whatever it is they're showing. Not just the top five to 10 movies that Amazon might produce every single year, but everything. Think about it. You could play, you could have screenings of movies that were uh, popular last year, or you could have screenings of, of uh, uh, seasons of shows. Think about that. We actually don't do that right now. And now you could potentially, in a recurring way, get people back to movie theaters. Because what you do is you say, hey, uh, yeah, I can't even think of an Amazon show right now, but uh, maybe Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if that's on Amazon or something. Maybe that's on Netflix. Whatever. Who cares? So let's say you want to watch Handmaid's Tale. And you're like, I want to see that in the theory, that uh, in the theaters. That'd be awesome. Well, now you're captive in the theater 
10 times in a row. And you may as well pick up your Amazon order while you're at it. And you're bringing business to that local plaza and potentially the restaurants and the malls that they're attached to. So really what AMC has is the prime real estate location. Amazon can build movie theaters wherever they want, but AMC has the locations. And solely because they have the rights to those locations, I actually think there could be value in a potential Amazon AMC play. Now, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the AMC fundamentals, so generally I'm pretty bearish, but this actually could make some sense. Amazon's got like 70 billies sitting around, 70 to 80 billion dollars of cash sitting around. Paying three or four bill for AMC, which, which could have an upside of somewhere between 30 to 50%, uh, is actually not that unreasonable. So we'll see. It's an interesting idea. It's, uh, it, there are some real potential ideas for how it could make, how it could really integrate Amazon into people's lives a little bit more. And really think about it. If you have a Prime membership, you could come to the movie theater for free. Now, it'll be interesting how they sort of pre-schedule that because generally if you have it free, you might fill up the movie theaters. But then again, if anybody's been to an AMC recently, you know most of the time the theaters are somewhere around 80% empty. Uh, unless there's like some hot hit new movie like Top Gun or whatever, and then maybe it's like 60% full. But I would say the average occupancy of most of the theaters right now is probably somewhere around 20 to 30%. Amazon giving away seats for free basically to their Prime subscribers could actually keep the, the theaters in business. And then guess where theaters make, oh, I didn't even think about this. Oh, see, listen to this. Remember where movie theaters make money? You think it's at the ticket booth? Of course not. Generally, all of the ticket booth revenue goes to the uh, movie studios anyway. Where do movie theaters make money, folks? Concessions. That overpriced hot dog that you just gotta have. That popcorn you just gotta have. Well, now, if you fill up the movie theaters for free, basically, people are like, yo, you, you just use your Prime membership, swipe your phone and, 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 and go into the movie theaters. It's actually a brilliant idea. Now you can sell overpriced concessions to people and people can pick up their Amazon orders all in one. It's a good idea. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, are people going to care? Will people actually come? Because in theory, it's not really a free show. You are paying for the Prime membership, right? You could watch it at home. So... That's probably your risk factor here is like, are you actually going to get people to watch, you know, shows and movies uh, for free at the movie theaters? That's probably the bigger stretch. Now they got the real estate, but that's all I could see because outside the real estate, Amazon's probably better off just making their own movie theaters because the landlords will just build the damn theaters for them. But AMC might have the location. That's it. Okay. So that's my take on AMC. And if you're like spoiled bong water who says, is Kevin really talking about AMC? The answer is yes. And if you don't like it, you can get life insurance in as little as five minutes. Look at this. I now even have a paid promotion button. You see that? Look at that. I press a button and it comes up just for you. So I can go metkevin.com slash life, metkevin.com slash free. Get yourself 12 free stuff. And check out the courses on building your wealth link down below. And I can do that all with the little push of a button. I can even put a little banner up if I wanted to. Ooh, can I do banner and paid? Oh, oh. oh yeah, yeah.
All right, now we gotta talk about the banking crisis. Well, we gotta talk about the banking crisis again. The banking crisis is, <laughs> oh, it's a crisis. Yesterday, we had several executives and Republicans and Democrats freaking out with all their ideas about how to solve the banking crisis. I'm gonna give you a quick lowdown on what happened in Congress yesterday. Spoiler alert, nothing. But more interestingly, we're gonna see Donald Trump lash out about the banking crisis. That's interesting. And we're gonna talk about how Deutsche Bank was potentially manipulated ooh, via the credit default swipe, uh, credit default swap skyrocketing that we saw last week on Friday, which led to a lot of shivers in the stock market, especially in the banking sector. Now, be warned, if, 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 Donald Trump upsets you. See this little banner right here that says paid promotion? It's because I'm about to tell you, you can still get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to vetkevin.com slash life, Apple Pay or Android Pay for it. All right, banner gone. All right, let's get started. So first, yesterday, several Republicans freaked out over the FDIC's handling of Silicon Valley Bank and the crisis. Uh, Chairman uh, Grunberg asked, why did the FDIC reject bidders that might have taken over the bank before regulators were required to, uh, you know, basically jump in? And the FDIC is basically like, look, you know, there was too little time for people to do due diligence, and we have restrictions on how long it could take for people to go through this due diligence, so we basically rejected some of the initial bids. Keep in mind how the Swiss National Bank ended up resolving the takeover of Credit Suisse. They basically told UBS, look, pay this amount, agree to take this much in losses, you're buying this fixer upper, we will guarantee the next $15 billion of losses. Just don't look too closely. We know it's a toxic bank. Just please say you'll take it over and we will just give you more and more money until you say yes. <laughs> That's how the Swiss pulled it off. Uh, so, but anyway, so you have freaking out on both sides over here. Republicans especially were freaking out in terms of why the Fed didn't actually uh, uh, regulate these banks earlier. Uh, even though a lot of problems have been identified at Silicon Valley Bank, it's true. It's like, where was the supervising? Yeah, there were inquiries and there were letters and there were complaints about Silicon Valley Bank in the past, but nobody actually dropped the hammer. So they're kind of right about that. But uh, then, of course, you had uh, both sides split on whether or not we should have more regulation. You had uh, Elizabeth, and I'm summarizing like a three or four hour event yesterday, okay? And we're going to do this fast. Elizabeth Warren yesterday is like, all right, look, we need a whole lot more regulation. And then Republicans are like, but is that fair to the banks that weren't reckless? And so that kind of gives you a little bit of an example of what you could expect to happen over the next two years in terms of new banking regulation. Absolutely nothing. Thank you, Congress. Yes, of course, on one side, more regulation! And on the other side, oh, we're just not convinced. <laughs> uh, anyway, and then of course, there was talk about the FDIC having to take in billions of dollars in potential losses. Ultimately, the FDIC is going to likely pass that on to all the various different member banks of the FDIC, which means your banking fees will probably go up. That is called corporate socialism, but it is what the FDIC is designed for after all. So uh, it's uh, not a terrible surprise. That's the point. It's kind of like an HOA. Everybody pays in and then if something go falls apart or something gets screwed up, well, then what happens? Well, then you end up uh, having HOA dues potentially go up uh, because let's say the pool fell, uh, fell into a sinkhole and now your HOA dues have to go up because there was some kind of problem that happened. 
Anyway, so that gives you really a summary of yesterday's banking crisis discussion. There, it really wasn't worth watching. I hope you didn't watch the whole thing because what do you think Congress is going to do? Nothing. Instead, let's now listen to Donald Trump, though. Donnie T. Let's see what he thinks uh, should happen. So here's an interview with Donnie T. And uh, let's take a listen in over to this. And play. Uh-oh. Oh, we're getting the pinwheel. We're getting the pinwheel. Hold on a second. There we go. Oh my lord. That's just rude. That's just rude. That was loud too. Alright. Skip. We are back with former President Donald Trump for the entire hour, and here is more of my interview from Mar-a-Lago. The economy, I can't even say strongly enough, is in complete shambles. We have 60% of our country now living paycheck to paycheck. CBS News now says 25% of people in our great country are what they call food insecure, food that can't get bare necessities. Recession, record. Inflation, record. Our debt, our deficits. You know, why has this happened? How would you fix it? And would you have supported the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank? Okay. Ready? Yeah. Had a lot of questions you're asking me. I am. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, the bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank is interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. I was not a big fan of Powell. I was rec he was recommended by some people. I didn't like him. Uh, he's uh, too interest rate happy. What you do is... Whoops. You get the oil prices down. That's bigger than it. That's actually a really interesting argument, though, the, this idea that uh, Donald Trump says, no, don't bail out the bank, right? Don't bail out Silicon Valley Bank. Let them fail is the argument that Donald Trump here is essentially making. Now, somebody in the comments here, why would it do that? Uh, somebody in the comments here is saying, uh, I don't think the issue is a lack of regulation. None of the banks can survive a bank run. That may be true that none of the banks can survive a bank run. What the hell? <laughs> Hold on, let me fix this. Dude, they got rid of my video. What a ripoff. What a complete ripoff. Uh, I want to answer that comment about none of the banks can survive. Now it's going to make me watch the ad again, I bet you. <laughs> Fox News. You fart knockers. Uh, anyway, we'll go right back to this. Um, this idea that none of the banks can survive a bank run. I think it's, it's, um, it's important to remember that... Uh, what you had with, with Silicon Valley Bank was a bank that purposefully didn't take an interest rate hedge, right? Uh, they could have hedged, and they used to hedge against interest rates. So they knew that they should have. They knew they should have, and they used to hedge against interest rates. But then they stopped because it wasn't profitable to do so. So they got rid of their own hedge. Let's keep going here. All right, here we go. The bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. Ready? Yeah. I had a lot of questions you're asking me. I am. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, the bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank is interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. I was not a big fan of Powell. I was rec he was recommended by some people. I didn't like him. Uh, he's uh, too interest rate happy. What you do is... You get the oil prices down. That's bigger than interest rates, the only thing. And what happened is we took an oil and now we take an interest rates. Those banks failed 
because the interest rates were too high. They stupidly bought long-term treasuries. Ten-year treasuries. Well, they bought long-term, longer than that even. Mm. And they bought long-term, and those treasuries got crushed because Powell keeps raising interest rates. But that's up to Biden. He's going to have to worry about that himself. You know, in theory. How would you fix it? Uh, well, I would have done a big number on Powell like I did. I did. I did a very big number. In fact, uh, he wasn't budging. He wouldn't have given he up eventually, energy. He eventually cut him so much that it almost caused a problem. People said, how come he's cutting me? He cut him almost a point yeah. immediately because he thought I was going to fire him, okay? Which some people said I had the right to do. Other people said, you don't. You know, when you put them there, rightfully, they have to have some protection, et cetera, et cetera, from a president. But how much of this is... But I thought he was hurting the economy. You, you left this country for the first time in 75 years. We were energy independent. Right. And net exporter of energy. Right. Okay. We're now, going to be dominant. Okay. Okay. And Europe right now could have used American energy. They could, they this winter, they could have used it. Yeah. So, but now Joe has cut back dramatically on domestic production of energy. Now we're importing. Not believable. We're it's importing believable. from Venezuela. Yeah. Saudi Arabia last year, their, their big oil company made the most money they've ever made in history. That's right. Over, I think it was over $167 billion. How much of that, because doesn't energy impact uh, trucking, it impacts the price of goods in every store that we go to? So when Biden came in, the first thing he did was end the Keystone Pipeline that I got approved. Okay, it was all approved. Well, no, he also gave Putin a waiver on the Nord Stream too. Okay, so Putin said, because everyone said, oh, I'm so nice to Putin. Putin said, if you're my friend, I'd hate to see you as an enemy. He told me that. I got along very well with Putin. By the way, I'd be able to work that out. It would have never happened in a million years. And even the Democrats admit that. But if this thing isn't solved by the time we have the election, which is possible, it won't be. And there's also possible we'll be in World War III with these idiots that are doing what they're doing. You could end up in a nuclear world war, which will make World War I and World War II look like patty cakes, okay? Uh, this unbelievable because we have people that don't know what they're doing. But if it's not solved, I will have it solved in 24 hours with Zelensky and with Putin. And there's a very easy negotiation to take place, but I don't want to tell you what it is because then I can't use that negotiation. It'll never work. But there's a very easy negotiation to take place. I will have it solved within one day, a peace between them. Now, that's a year and a half. That's a long time. I can't imagine something not happening. Uh, the, the key the with that is the war has to stop now because Ukraine is being obliterated. You know, whether there'll be nothing people, left. Well, I looked at pictures of cities that are literally Decimated. like a, it's like complete de demolition. I was in the construction business. You would demolish a building and you'd it looked like hundreds of these demolition sites. The build, there wasn't a building standing. And these are cities for Ukraine, they were big cities, very big cities. Now, he hasn't really, in Kiev, he hasn't really set the missiles in, but at some point he'll do that one too. There's nothing standing. The other thing is many more people are dead and horribly injured than they're reporting. You know, when you see missiles hitting 15 buildings and 15 buildings falling to the ground and they're big buildings, there are a lot of people in those buildings, and then they say one person was injured. These are phony reports. Many, many people are being killed that you don't know, but you'll see that later so, on. So you'd prefer, if you were president, you think you could, you would have a negotiated settlement. And, Within 24 hours. And we wouldn't no longer be po ponying up all the money that, by the way, Western, Western Europe is not doing their fair share. What's unfair, and you and I have had this conversation, 
is that we are spending, we're up to almost $150 billion, and Europe's at $24 billion. Now, it's the same thing with NATO. Don't forget, I got the, them to put up hundreds of billions of dollars. My first meeting at NATO, you know, I was just there, never did this before. I'm sitting with all these presidents and prime ministers, nice guys, 28 countries, and I'm looking at the charts. I say, could I see who's delinquent because they're supposed to pay? And they say, what do you mean by delinquent? They said, that's a real estate term. When you don't pay your rent, you're delinquent. Could I please see uh, who has not paid? And of the 28 countries, 20 were not paid. They weren't paying. Mm -hmm. And I said, you have to pay. And if you don't pay, I'm not going to protect you. And the head of a very important country stood up and said, who was delinquent, said, could I ask you if we don't, what you're saying, if Russia attacks us and we aren't paid up, you're not going to protect us? I said, that's exactly what I mean. All right. So that gives you a little bit on Donnie T here. Now, I want to give you some reactions to this because, uh, first of all, I have to say, there's something that Donald Trump does, whether you like him or not, that, uh, as Ben Mala said, in my interview with him just a few weeks ago, Donald Trump has a way of inspiring hope in people that somebody like, unfortunately, in the opinion of Ben Mala, Ron DeSantis may not. Now, here's the way you have to look at what just happened here. Is it realistic that Donald Trump could negotiate peace between Russia and Zelensky within 24 hours? Unlikely. But did it inspire hope? Well, if you hate Donald Trump, it probably inspired you vomiting, but that's okay. You could get life insurance in as little as five minutes and help solve that problem. <laughs> but if, uh, if, if you don't hate him and at least you're somewhat neutral, relatively, maybe somewhat still in the middle, at least there's this like, huh, it kind of makes you think like, is, would, is it possible? Like if, if Joe Biden, well, maybe not Joe Biden, but let's put it this way. If, if Obama, okay, if Obama right now had a corridor, like a 100% safe corridor, where in one room there was Putin, and in the other room there was Zelensky. And Obama's like, all right, I'm just going to keep going back and forth until I got to solve. We're going to solve this problem. All right, everyone? Thank you, everyone. Nah, this is bad. But anyway, the point is, maybe it would get done. And so what Donald Trump does is he actually inspires that hope. He instills hope that, well, maybe there, there would be a way to save people's lives and the cities and the buildings that are destroyed. Maybe, maybe there is a way to avoid World War III because nobody wants that. We don't want, you know, World War I and II to look like patty cakes. That sounds terrible. Whereas you did have Ron DeSantis suggest this is just a territorial dispute. Now, since then, he's walked that comment back because he got a lot of backlash and now he's like, oh, I'm going to refine my opinion. And his refined opinion was really basically a U-term. So it's fascinating. When you listen to Donald Trump talk, you could see exactly how you, you get introduced to hope that you didn't even realize could exist. And that motivates people to vote for Donald Trump. Think about this. He says, quote, I would have done a big number on Powell. I've done it before. I had him under the threat of firing him. He was so scared he ended up cutting rates. Now, what's interesting is, we don't know if Powell ended up cutting rates in 2018 because the market and bond market were freaking out or because of Donald Trump's threats. But Donald Trump was threatening to fire him in the second half of 2018. I remember covering it here on YouTube. I remember it very clearly. Everybody's like, you can't fire him. He's like, I'm gonna fire him. <laughs> 
Uh, technically, there's supposed to be a division between uh, the Federal Reserve and politics. Technically, the Federal Reserve is supposed to be apolitical. It gets appointed and authorized to do its job by Congress, but it's technically not a part of the government. It's supposed to be independent. This is despite the fact that the Financial Times just yesterday was reporting that Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen are basically trying to align their messaging on banks, which is a problem because Janet Yellen is basically a puppet of the Biden administration, which is a political office. And if Jerome Powell's trying to align with Yellen, then you have political alignment. So it's it's a very, very blurry line. But the what else did Donald Trump say? Well, he said, we shouldn't focus on rates. We should just focus on lowering the cost of oil. How about we drill more? How about instead of banning the Keystone Pipeline, we just have more energy independence? He's not wrong about that. More energy independence leads to lower prices. Why? Well, obviously, because not only do you get headline numbers come down because you have a greater supply of natural gas and oil, but you also help core inflation come down because all of the service providers who are charging more to their clients because their gas costs more don't necessarily have to pass on higher costs now. That actually doesn't even get measured uh, in, in, in inflation as well, because generally when we look at core inflation, we think that's X food and energy, but energy is part of every single part of our economy. So we make some really good points. And I hate to say it, but if you took Donald Trump right here out of context and you ignored all of the past, all his faux pas, Jan 6, all the investigations, the stormy dance. If you just ignored all of the past and you took that clip and put it next to a clip from Biden and a clip from DeSantis right now, Donald Trump would win. That It was very inspiring. So, you know, I'm not a Trump apologist, okay, by any means. Like, I, I do my best to be very in the middle. But I actually think the way he... He, he presents this information. He brings up ideas that really we're not talking about uh, as much as we should. You know, the idea of more energy independence, the idea of how maybe more energy independence can help us reduce inflation. It's logical, but it's not one that gets talked about a lot. The idea of why don't we have a world leader actually trying to negotiate peace and the United States is in the best place to do it, whereas we're not even remotely trying to negotiate with them. Are we handcuffed to the military industrial complex, which is telling us, no, 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 don't negotiate peace. We like the orders. I don't know. It's, it's just very interesting. It's, it's very, very interesting. So uh, I think, uh, I think that, that's a good little uh, analysis there on the Trump part. Now, I quickly want to talk about the, what happened with those credit default swaps regarding uh, the banking crisis. I do think Trump, by the way, saying uh, that Silicon Valley banks should just fail. Uh, I don't think it would have been as bad as people think because basically the bank would have gotten bought out at a discount. It would have gotten liquidated and then depositors would have taken like a 10 to 20% haircut. It might have created more fear and contagion, and that's just the unknown. But it's like not like people over the FDIC limit would have lost all their money. It, it would have been a, a percentage, you know, 10, 20 percent, maybe as much as 30 percent, but not more. We'll never know. Uh, anyway, uh, on Friday, we did see credit default swaps for Charles Schwab skyrocket. However, it's uh, worth noting that fewer than 20% of Charles Schwab's depositors actually exceed the 250K FDIC limit. 90% of depositors at Silicon Valley Bank exceeded the 250K limit. That's why there was so much like political drama about protecting depositors here. Uh, Charles Schwab has 34 million accounts, 7 trillion assets. It's literally huge. 
Yeah, they've got $29 billion in unrealized losses, but with bonds rallying, that actually has been falling. Uh, they suggest they have enough liquidity to cover deposits right now. Of course, they're considering also other assets that they would have to liquidate. You don't have enough cash to cover deposits ever at a bank. Uh, but uh, Schwab seems pretty strong. Uh, that's Charles Schwab. Uh, we were supposed to talk about Deutsche Bank, but let me get this out of the way. Some people have been asking me about it. 51% uh, of their income comes from net interest revenue. Their sweep account pays just 0.45%. Uh, but uh, the, the bank seems pretty strong right now. So people bringing up questions about Schwab, probably uh, unnecessary to worry about Schwab at this point. TBD though, we can keep an eye on it. Regarding Deutsche Bank, same story. Their revenue is increasing. Their profits are increasing. Schwab's actually doing fantastic. Uh, or sorry, Deutsche Bank's actually doing pretty dang well over the last few years if you look at their financials. Uh, Deutsche Bank had credit default swaps skyrocket on Friday. Apparently, the reason for that was a single trade. One trader, we don't know who it is, but one person put on a $5 million bet. And because these are so illiquid, they led credit default swaps to skyrocket on Friday, sending a signal to markets that was actually inappropriate. One trader made a bet, freaked out the market that Deutsche Bank credit default swaps were skyrocketing, which is an insurance against failure. And all of a sudden, the entire market gets, you know, its panties in a knot, thinking, oh my god, the banking crisis is worsening. Clickbait. It was one freaking trader. So it's kind of interesting to look at that. So long and short of all of this, Trump, uh, we talked about, long and short of the banking crisis. So far, does it really seem to be widespread systemic risk outside of the risky banks? No. Uh, is this issue potentially going to fade away? Yes. Could there be other issues? Yes. Do we see those red flags now? No. So when it comes to the banking crisis, get life insurance and keep putting one foot in front of the other. In as little as five minutes, uh, you can go to metkevin.com slash life and get yourself paid promotion, uh, a life insurance, paid promotion life insurance here. A little as five minutes, Apple or Android pay for it. Get free stocks by going to metkevin.com slash weeble, 12 free stocks, and use buy now, pay later on the programs on building your wealth linked down below. That concludes the banking crisis and Donald Trump lash out section. Now we got to cover what the bears are saying and boy, our buddy Morgan Stanley is back with another one or our buddy from Morgan Stanley is back with another bear piece. And I love reading what the bears have to say because even though I am a bull at heart and I think the Nike swoosh recovery is real, I want to pay attention to what the bears are up to because you always got to know what your enemies are doing. It'd be silly to be blind to what your competition is doing. So what are we going to do? We're gonna look at this piece right here, Morgan Stanley. The bond market is questioning the Fed's dot plot. Basically, I'm gonna keep this one simple for you. So, the bond market is pricing in cuts. Jerome Powell, per uh, Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's analyst, who's the big bear in the office, he probably doesn't have many friends in the office, uh, uh, but who knows. Anyway, he says, look, the Fed is really explicit that we're not going to cut rates this year. Why is the market cutting in these rates? Well, it's probably because the bond market is saying the U.S. economy is either going to fall into recession or banking stresses are far from resolved. But he actually missed an argument here. And I'd like to point out where the bulls could be wrong and where the bears could be wrong. But he missed an argument here. It is entirely possible that 
the market is pricing in a massive set of rate cuts by the end of this year because A, they're doing what the Fed refuses to do, say that inflation is going to plummet and rates are going to come down as a result. The Fed can't say that because if they say that, inflation won't plummet. So they're in a game, they're in a psychological game, whereas the bond market is not subject to that psychological game. They're actually putting their money where their mouth is. They're not using their mouth as a psychological tool to get people to stop spending money to affect demand in markets, right? The bond market is not only saying either we're going to fall into recession or banking stresses are over. It's actually threefold. Either we go into recession or banking stresses or inflation is about to plummet or a combination of all three of these. But the third one is actually very encouraging because if inflation goes away and we could cut back to, you know, a low interest rate regime, the recession's over. People got enough money to keep spending. Look at what happened with Lulu yesterday. People are spending money like they're drunk. People are still spending money like crazy. It's absolutely insane. Now, Morgan Stanley suggests that you should cut from Exxon uh, and Simon Property Group and instead on their best buy list or fresh money buy list. What is this, a grocery shopping list? That sounds lame. They should think of a better list than that. They suggest you add Colgate. I had to look up what CL was because I'm like, who buys Colgate? Uh, but anyway, Colgate and Walmart. I actually think these, and, and that's because they're positioning defensively. I bluntly wrote next to that, wrong. And the reason I think that's wrong is because these are exactly the kind of companies that are going to lose pricing power in the environment that we're in right now. Employee costs go up. These companies disproportionately have high employee costs for the amount of revenue they have compared to, uh, you know, some of the high free cash flowing pricing power stocks that I like. Again, whether it's NVIDIA, if I just combined Enphase and NVIDIA, Enphase, NVIDIA, Taiwan Semiconductors, Tesla, Apple, those companies pricing power. Walmart? Come on. That stock has done phenomenally over the last year because it's a defensive play, but that's a trade. And when the fundamentals come through, that trade will fade away, my opinion. Okay, but you already know that. Uh, so they, of course, suggest that earnings are going to fall going into the recession. But listen to this. He actually says, we focused, we had a macro discussion and we focused the session on credit availability, which credit availability is actually still remaining strong, uh, which is shocking in the short term. Labor market dynamics, a lot more labor supply. We know that. Earnings guidance slowly going down. We'll look at the chart in a moment. And pricing power. I love that they talked about pricing power. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at some of his conclusions on this. So what did we have over here? We're seeing another quarter where estimates are being lowered. That's fine. So earnings are decelerating. Now, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson believes that earnings markdowns have a lot more to go. He believes the consensus is that earnings are going to basically do this at the S&P 500 or that, that this is what the consensus estimates are. But he actually believes we're going to be on much more of this downslope. So he really thinks earnings for S&P 500 companies are going to fall a lot more than expected or is priced in. I agree with him, just not on all stocks. Pricing power stocks, I think, will survive. Now, uh, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson suggests that, look, when inflation happens, you can, everybody can raise pricing. You have a lot more operating leverage. But the problem is when inflation goes down, your operating leverage, in other words, how much you're able to increase sales above your operating expenses, OPEX, like sales and gen, goes up maybe 5%, but revenue goes up 15%, positive operating leverage. But what happens in a disinflationary environment? Well, you might see revenues decline 5%, but your operating expenses go up 15%. Exactly. 
I actually think that's exactly what's going to happen to staples, not pricing power stocks. Now, we could actually be aligned in that he might be thinking, look, maybe it's the S&P 500 that gets burned. I agree with that because there are a lot of staples in the S&P 500. Now, uh, something that I thought was very interesting is I purposefully wanted to see what ChatGPT would say about this. So we ran ChatGPT. What does inflation do to operating leverage? And they talk about exactly this, about how inflation can increase operating leverage. However, it's worth noting uh, that inflation can also affect a company's pricing power, which could affect operating leverage. For example, if a company has strong pricing power and can pass on inflationary uh, effects to customers, it may be able to maintain profit margins. The question, though, is do you get pricing power solely because of inflation? I believe the answer is every company gets pricing power because of inflation. The real challenge is which companies maintain pricing power when that inflation goes away. And that's what Mike Wilson is warning of. So he thinks when that inflation goes away, the easy pricing power, all the easy PP goes away. Now you enter the bear market where only the companies with true pricing power survive the recession. Mike Wilson suggests that equity risk premiums right now are way too low to justify being in stocks. Now, I wrote on this that yields potentially manipulate this, and that's because right now the risk-free rate is so high because of the inflation we're fighting, and Mike Wilson did only go back to about 2008 here. So I have a little bit of an asterisk on, on his bear thesis here. And uh, I do also think that uh, he has a point, though. He has this point that says it's possible equity investors are simply looking ahead towards the next bailout and the next stimulus regime. He might be right about that. He might be right that equity markets are looking towards basically the Fed just to cut to zero, and maybe we start getting stimulus checks again, not just for the CHIPS Act, not just for EVs and energy, but also potentially expanded unemployment or otherwise. Maybe. Now, uh, bear in mind that breadth has been ex exceptionally weak as large cap stocks are holding up the averages right now. Basically thinks, look, if large caps start falling, it's over because those are the only things holding up the S&P 500 right now. Now, he also makes an argument here <clears throat> about real estate briefly that we do not think that real estate is going to suffer the pain that we saw in the global financial crisis or the savings and loan crisis. Uh, and specifically, while there'll be uh, there'll still be weakness in lending and mortgages. Ultimately, we believe that a real estate won't suffer with the exception of retail as much as it previously had in the past. However, credit cards still running hot. And in my opinion, that reiterates that people are on it in terms of, well, spending through this recession. Now, my goal was to end this, but I want to add some more commentary before the bell. So we're going to listen to the bell, and then I want to add some more commentary in my thesis on this. Uh, I'm, look, I'm not going to ever go against Nike because it's a great manufacturer. But, wow, well, these guys are well ahead of Nike. Let's get the opening bell here. CNBC Real-Time Exchange at the big board. Panagram Structured Asset Management celebrating the recent listing of its first ETF. Nice green open. Welcome. Pharma. Welcome to a green open, everyone. Okay. So I got to get to the course member live stream, but what are my opinions on what Morgan Stanley is saying here, or, or specifically Mike Wilson? He has a point that yes, in a traditional recession, wouldn't it make sense to go to Staples, especially Walmart? Yes, 
And that's why people have gone to Walmart over the last year, because the idea is that poor people stop shopping at Target and fancy places, they go to Walmart. Richer people stop spending at Target and Whole Foods, they go to Walmart. And that actually has been happening. He is correct about that. But in my opinion, being correct about that is actually looking into hindsight. When we look at Walmart stock over the last year, they've done very well. They're only down 1.73% over the last year. They've done extremely well in terms of holding up shareholder value. The problem is, in my opinion, this is a company that is actually looking at pain ahead. Take a look at the following. We're going to look at their fundies really quick. So this is the last time I looked at the fundamentals on Walmart, uh, which actually this was not the last time. This is an old one. This is from July. I want to go ahead and pull up a more recent uh, fundy on Walmart, but we can look at this really quickly. So we looked at gross margin actually still being very incredible for Walmart, sitting around 23% gross, net margin sitting around 4%, which was fantastic. We'll get a recent report over here. They have uh, lots of, uh, let's see, what do we wrote over here? Uh, lots of cost and little cash is what I wrote. They have a lot of payables. Now that can tend to be very normal for a merchandiser. And when we look at their net cash provided by operating activities, though, they're still pumping out somewhere around $9.2 billion in operating cash at the last six months of 2020, or the first six months of 2022. When you take out or look at just free cash flow, they were sitting at about $1.5 billion of free cash flow. So they got free cash flow. They've been holding up very good defensive stock. But we want to look at some of their revenues. So let's go ahead and get their last quarterly report and look at that, and then we'll jump on over to the course member live stream. So if we go on over to their last press release, we'll get a little bit more of a look into Walmart because obviously he's moving into Colgate and Walmart for a reason, a defensive play. The idea is that eventually if people get rid of all of their discretionary spending, the one place they'll still go is Walmart. It's not a terrible argument. It's a very traditional recessionary mindset argument. The question really becomes how deep is the recession going to go? Are we going to be in a situation where we keep this recession going so long that you do end up killing people buying new iPhones or new cars or whatever? Maybe. So sales at Walmart year over year up 7.4%, membership down 3%, but you're still up 7.4% in sales, which is great. But keep in mind, inflation roughly matches that. So if you look at a real adjustment of revenues, we're probably actually about flat for Walmart in terms of growth. But in addition to that, you're actually negative on operating income. Look at that, 5.5%, which means if you inflation adjust their operating income, they're probably negative 13% in operating income year over year. I personally believe that is going to worsen. That is going to get even more difficult. That's my thesis. Again, it's very different from Morgan Stanley, but I believe the following. I believe that companies that do not have pricing power are going to be companies like Walmart, where basically you're keeping up with inflation here, but your costs of sales are exploding at a higher rate, and so is your OPEX, at a higher rate than you're able to raise revenues because you don't have pricing power. You're dealing with extremely price-sensitive customers. You're not dealing with price-sensitive customers or as price-sensitive customers at Apple, for example, or Enphase. Uh, and therefore, I think their operating leverage will go substantially negative. 
This is actually exactly what we saw with ChatGPT. Look at this. Revenues, what do we have? We have revenues up 7.4%, but their operating income is actually down 5.5%. It's a little bit of an oopsie doopsies. And it suggests they have negative operating leverage, which makes sense in a disinflationary time. This is why I think uh, Mike Wilson is actually wrong to go into staples at this point. Going into staples would have been a great thing January of 2022. In a Nike swoosh style recovery, it's a terrible thing to go into, my opinion. Now, if we look at their actual bottom line, uh, let's go to net income per common share. Uh, net income, very nice percentage-wise increase from last year. That's because of some of the write-downs they took last year and some lawsuit losses regarding uh, uh, pharmaceuticals that they had to uh, take some uh, losses on, some, some lawsuits and settlements. Uh, but anyway, ignoring that, let's uh, really, I think it's easier just to compare operating income over here because this is a little complicated because of the comparisons of the different quarters. Uh, but in my opinion, this is not necessarily something that's super exciting. Let me look at their cash flow quickly and then let's look at Colgate briefly and then we'll jump off over course member life. So they actually had a nice free cash flow though. I will give them that. Look at that. Very nice free cash flow. You had a, if we subtract these two numbers here, you've got about a $12 billion set of free cash flow. So plenty of cash, but declining operating leverage. Again, you would expect that though. So if we go to Colgate Investor Relations, let's just see if they have positive operating leverage or not, because that's what our bear here is suggesting, is that earnings are going to plummet. All the growth companies haven't properly priced in yet all of the pain that's to come. And basically the S&P 500 is being propped up by companies like Microsoft or Apple or otherwise, and the real pain is coming. Okay, so let's look at where he's moving money to. Colgate and Walmart. We just looked at Walmart. Let's quickly look at uh, uh, Colgate, and we have their annual report right here. So this annual report is just out from them. What we're going to do is we're going to jump over to their income statements. Let's see if we can find them here. Income statements. While I look for their income statements, remember uh, I, we've got a paid promotion, promotion, where you can get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com/life. You can actually get 12 free stocks by going to metkevin.com slash free. That's with Webull. It's my favorite platform. I actually just moved all my money out of TD Ameritrade, uh, and we're moving over to Webull because TD is a pain in the butt on mobile. Uh, it's, it, the Thinkorswim platform is pretty decent, but mobile is just trash. Uh, and I, I prefer how Webull transfers over your, your sticks and your, your drawings and your Fibonacci's and everything. I love that. Uh, and then, of course, check out the buy now, play later options now in the courses on building your wealth link down below. Oh, what do we have here? Colgate. All right. So Colgate's revenues. Let's do this briefly and then jump over to course and remember live stream. So Colgate has net sales here that have grown 17,967 year over year divided by 17,421. Wow. Only 3.1% growth. How do you argue you have pricing power with 3.1% growth? You don't. Holy smokes. And their costs went up by about 10%. 9.5% increase in costs of goods sold. So you are absolutely experiencing inflation at Colgate. Your costs of goods sold are skyrocketing. Uh, and your sales are, are barely growing. On a real basis, an inflation-adjusted basis, you're massively negative on sales. If we look at operating profit, oh, it's negative. 
Why would you buy this garbage? Uh, your, your, uh, uh, let's see, 2893 divided by 3332, your negative, uh, let's write this here, negative 13.1% on operating profit year over year. Why would you do this? There's no PP. This, this, there's literally zero PP. Like it's not even micro PP. It's like, it's like negative PP. It's, it's an inverted PP. It's inside out. This is problematic. Uh, now, the, the crazy thing, again, is these staples have actually held up. CL, let's see how it is. CL stock. I don't know. I haven't looked, uh, but I'll look. Uh, let's just do year over year. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is stupid. Look at that. Colgate, negative operating income, negative operating leverage, trash. The stock is down 1.8% year over year, just like Walmart. Why? Because the bears, the weenie baby bears, are like, uh, recession? Okay, we must move money to defensives. That's because what happens? Well, because you have money managers who pick up their phone and their clients are like, I'm worried about a recession. And then the money managers are like, it's okay. You're paying me to reallocate to defensives. We have done so. Are people really going to stop buying toothpaste because of a recession? Are people going to stop buying Walmart uh, chocolate bars because of a recession? No, of course not. Don't worry. We have you defensively positioned. But in the long term, what's going to happen? The fundamentals are going to shone through and these people are going to get racked. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So what do we have over here? Uh, let's just look at cash flows really quick. Uh, cash provided by operations. That's decent, actually. 2.5 bill. CapEx over here. You're at 1.9 bill in free cash flow. It's very good. It's a free cash flowing business, but it's because they're milking an existing business. Their actual operating leverage and their PP is negative. I wouldn't want to go near it. Like, what would you rather have? Okay, this is, this is your choice right now. This, I, I really want you to think about this. Keep in mind, this is the same stuff that I do with course members in our live streams daily, which I got to get to. Uh, and, and so if you're not a course member, you're missing out on this kind of perspective, all right? You pay once, you get lifetime access. All right, here's the thing. Would you rather defensives, which are down 1% year over year, you know what, I'll be generous. And so I'll say you're, you're at a 2% discount year over year. You have negative real revenues. You have negative operating leverage. Basically, uh, you have uh, negative PP, but you do have free cash flow. Uh, free cash flow is positive. That's true. Okay. Would you rather that, or do you go over here and you look at uh, pricing power growth stocks, where you have a negative twenty percent year-over-year discount? You have positive real revenue. You have positive operating. Uh, leverage in a disinflationary uh, time as well, which basically means you have positive PP uh, and your free cash flow positive. So what would you rather? No discount and negative real revenues or discount and positive real revenues with operating leverage and PP. The only reason those stocks are doing well right now is because it's a trade. It's a trade. If you want to trade it, that's fine. You can play the cyclical trades. But if you're looking for long-term portfolio building, hashtag not personalized financial advice. Some people get mad. They're like, why do finance channels say it's not financial advice? They're obviously talking about financial advice. 
This could be financial advice, but it's not personal financial advice. There's a big difference. I don't know what your situation is. If you have $100 to your name, should you go YOLO it all into Tesla? That's different from somebody who's got $10 million. Should you YOLO $100 into Tesla? Very different question, right? People get mad about the stupidest things, mostly because they don't understand legal definition. But anyway, which one makes more sense? In my opinion, it should be obvious, okay? Pee pee, big pee pee. That's my opinion. Now, with that said, I gotta take care of my course members. So I'm gonna hop on over, because usually we do the bell with them, but you got a little bit of a special freebie over here. Now we're gonna see and answer all the questions they have. Why is Donald Trump a money manager? <laughs> it's gonna be huge, okay? Because we like PP, we want to grab it by the PP, and we want huge PP. That's what we want, PP. I'm gonna go now.